spotlighting Hawaii's leaders. We want to bring in Governor David Ige. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Mayor Derek Kawakami. Thank you so much, uh, Senator, for being here. Spotlighting the issues. Where is the virus right now in our community? How much is this overall going to cost the state? How are you responding to the community's concerns? Talk about the level of citations that you guys are writing. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei Suji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs. Aloha, thanks so much for joining us here on Spotlight Hawaii. I'm Yenji Denise, joined by Ryan Kalei Suji here on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. Ryan, we've got a lot to talk about with our next guest, the Director of the Department of Health. Yeah, we want to welcome in Dr. Libby Char joining us once again this morning. Good morning, Dr. Char. Thanks so much uh, for taking time to join us on this Friday morning. Uh, we have a lot that we want to cover. We want to start off with monkeypox. We just got word uh, of a new probable case found in Hawaii. What can you tell us about uh, anything about this case and what you're seeing with uh, monkeypox in our islands? Good morning. So we just con uh, confirmed another case. It's orthopox at this point. Uh, this is case number six for Hawaii and the sample gets sent to the CDC for uh, confirmation that it is in fact monkeypox. Um, but so far, we have reason to believe that, that, you know, if we test positive for orthopox here, it will come back confirmatory positive as, as monkeypox. What, what are your concerns about this virus? We'll get to COVID in a minute. I know there's a lot there, but when it comes to monkeypox, what are you telling the public to do in terms of prevention? Um, you, you know, we know that there is uh, perhaps vaccine that we could take. What, what are you saying to the public who is concerned about this? So I think the thing to bear in mind is that the risk to most Hawaii residents remains very low. Um, it's not something you know that you're going to get walking down the street or anything. This is this is a, a pretty rare um, virus that people are getting when they are in close physical contact and or prolonged contact um, with somebody who's infected. So this is this is more of an intimate contact sort of transmission. Um, and so I think people just, you know, bear in mind that, that the risk to the average person in Hawaii is, is quite low. And with these cases, is it similar to what we saw with uh, COVID-19 in terms of the contact tracing? I mean, when the department finds out that there has been a possible exposure, uh, is the Department of Health going out and seeking those contacts and those around them to also make them aware? What is that process looking like right now? Yeah, I think the, the team at the Department of Health has been doing a really good job with that. So um, we, are, we are aggressively contact tracing every case. And what that has allowed us to do is to find other people who may be at risk and contact them um, and, and have them either see their physician or, you know, let our teams check. And, and so that's how we've uncovered um, subsequent cases. Um, and, and then really trying to educate and get the word out so that people who are at risk you know, called us and called us back when we when we left messages for them. So it, it very much is contact tracing and trying to catch things early. Um, if we catch it early enough, um, people who are at very high risk, we could vaccinate. Uh, people who are showing symptoms could be treated um, if it was appropriate. And, and what are the consequences of this particular virus? What are the symptoms? If you, you know, what should people be on the lookout if they, you know, if they suspect they may have been in contact with someone who has this virus? Yeah, for the most part, it's it's actually a self-limited illness. I think what's so important to us in the Department of Health is that it's not a disease that's normally found in Hawaii or even in the United States. 
Um, and we don't want it to become endemic in Hawaii or in the U.S. And that's why we're really, really trying to be, you know, aggressive and get on top of this so that we, we don't end up with a chronic situation. Um, it would start out as um, influenza-like symptoms, you know, just kind of tired, fevers, achy sort of thing. Uh, we, we've been seeing uh, lymphadenopathy or swelling in the lymph nodes. Um, and then tiny little uh, vesicles, so kind of like little blisters or pimples. There's a very characteristic look. You can kind of Google it or see on the website. But typically, it's been showing up on the hands, the feet, uh, in the genitals, or on the face. Um, but it can be anywhere on the body. And, and it can be just a few little of these tiny blister-like lesions, or it can be several. Um, it's really a matter of if you, if you think you've been in, you know, in contact with somebody that had monkeypox, or you think that these symptoms sound like, like that could be what you have, please call your physician, um, call your healthcare provider, go get checked. Switching gears here to focus on COVID-19, I'm wondering if you can provide us an update of where we're at right now uh, on the statewide level, um, just some of the numbers that we're seeing, both in cases that are being reported, but also in the hospitals. So right now, um, I think it's it's looking up for us. We had a high of uh, 1,200 cases a day, and these are new confirmed PCR tested cases a day um, on June 1st and it was 10 straight weeks of increases. The following week on June 8th, we came down to about 1,085 new cases a day. And last week it was down to 976. This week uh, on Wednesday, it was 832. So it's good that we seem to be trending down for the third week. Um, at, at a minimum, it's a plateau, but I'm hopeful that we'll at least be trending downward a bit. One of the things that could make a big difference, of course, we know is vaccinations and the youngest in our community are now eligible for a vaccine. What are you telling parents who are, you know, taking perhaps a wait and see approach, not making that first appointment available, uh, but wanting to see what happens first? Um, what do you say about the safety and the efficacy in the vaccine for those under five? I think we have a, a good amount of evidence uh, from the FDA and from the the studies that were done and the trials that these vaccines are safe and that they're effective. And the FDA um, approved it. Um, they, they did the emergency use authorization. The CDC subsequently concurred and the vaccine is now available to those who are under five. Um, we recently received shipments of it. We had placed pre-orders and we got our first doses on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So it should be statewide and all the different providers um, so it should be accessible and i hear that they're gearing up for some kind of larger vaccine campaigns this weekend i really don't see a reason to wait at this point i think we have good good data to show that it's effective and it's safe and it just makes sense because from the the time you get that first dose there's a, a period of either three or four weeks depending on which vaccine you get to get the second dose and then typically it's a couple of weeks after that when you have you know really good protection or in the case of Pfizer you got to get the third dose as well eight weeks later and then you have good protection so we're looking at you know at least another month before people are really starting to get good protection you know six weeks or so at a minimum so go get it now and you should be in good shape for the fall um, this is especially important for preschool and daycare and we want kids to be protected before the school starts up again in the fall um, I don't see a reason to wait and what about for the booster shots as well um, in, in allowing the fourth shot to be available to anyone that wants? We know that right now there are some 
criteria is around those who have uh, autoimmune issues or are a caregiver or around those, um, or of course by age, those are the ones who are being recommended to get this uh, additional booster shot, the second shot or fourth shot overall. Do you believe that at some point this fourth uh, shot would become something that is um, not necessarily required, but something that is recommended more and more readily available to anyone that's seeking it? Yeah, as you know, right now it's uh, 50 and older are eligible for that second booster shot. And if you are 50 and older, again, I would recommend that you go and get that booster shot because that'll help pump up your, your uh, neutralizing antibodies and just protect you from, from getting severely ill. But also it'll help a little bit on the front end of even getting infected. Um, I would hope that it expands so that it becomes more readily available to everybody who wants that second booster. Um, but I'm also hearing a lot of conversation on the federal level that they're working on a vaccine, uh, a bivalent vaccine that should be coming out in the fall. Um, and so if it becomes a matter of economics, I'm guessing that they would be, you know, putting more into that, that fall vaccine to try and help ward off not only original COVID and, and all the variants we've had thus far, but add kind of that extra boost for the Omicron variants. I want to bring in questions from the audience. There are quite a few, but let's get take Ingrid's here. Please discuss the presence of Omicron variants uh, four and five in the state right now. These are also known as BA4 and BA5. What can you tell us about these new variants, uh, how present they are in the cases that we're seeing and how concerned you are? I've been watching these uh, new subvariants quite closely. Um, across the U.S., we're starting to see the emergency of it, emergence of it. And I think it went from about 13% um, in, the, in the U.S. up to now about 34.5%, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, and so it is very concerning. Thankfully, in Hawaii, we haven't seen that much. We have detected it in each county, but we haven't seen a whole lot of it in the genomic sequencing that we've been doing thus far. I think it's somewhere about, you know, 1% or 2%. So it's still quite low in Hawaii. The reason that we care about this is that with BA4 and 5, um, it seems to be about 1.6, 1.7 times more transmissible than the BA2. And BA2 is more transmissible than, than BA1. And so that's, that's very concerning. But I think most importantly is that it's developed some immune evasion. And, and really what we're concerned about is, is that immune evasion. So far the vaccines still confer good protection. Um, but we're seeing more and more cases of reinfection. And if you had COVID, you know, used to be that people were like, I had COVID, I'm good to go, I'm bulletproof now. That's not the case. You absolutely can get reinfected and especially with these subvariants. And so because of that, we're really keeping an eye on it. That could, you know, could that lead to a bunch more cases in, in the next few months and into the fall? Um, it's a possibility. We saw a big spike in South Africa and in Portugal, and it was attributed to BA4 and 5. Um, starting to see some cases in the UK right now. And again, across the US, we're starting to see some states tick back up again um, and, and more BA4 or 5 on the mainland than we have here. So it is something to watch. Again, not something to, to panic about, but go get vaccinated. If you're eligible for boosters, go get whatever boosters you're eligible for. With that, um, and knowing that that could be something that is on the horizon, I mean, what is your recommendation to individuals as this mask wearing um, conversation continues within our community? 
Um, you know, is do you believe that uh, people should be wearing masks indoors still? Is that something that you would want to see be reinstated as policy uh, by the state or by the county leadership? Uh, your thoughts on preventative measures, knowing that these types of variants could potentially impact our state in, in the months to come? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think to remind everybody, masks are a tool and they're one of several tools that we have in our arsenal. So yes, go get vaccinated. Masks work. We know that they work. They help to reduce the transmission. Absolutely wear your mask, especially indoors and even outdoors. If you're going somewhere that's really crowded and you're around a bunch of people that you don't normally you know, stay with, I would wear my mask outdoor in that situation as well. But indoors, yes. Um, in, in my office, we all agreed, you know, we continue to wear our masks indoors to try and protect each other. And it's it's been really good because we know that throughout the state, there have been, you know, little clusters here and there amongst employees. Um, and typically those that are wearing masks consistently um, aren't seeing as much transmission as those that are not wearing masks indoors. So we know it works. It, it's easy to do. It's reasonable. Um, I absolutely support wearing masks indoors. Do you think, though, just to follow up on what Ryan was asking, that there will be a shift in the actual policy? Do you see the return of a mask mandate, at least on the indoors, anytime soon? You know, the mandates are really hard because I think um, we'd have to check on the legal side of it, but I think you would need to have an emergency proclamation declared um, in order to be able to enforce something like that. So I think that would probably be real challenging. Um, governor has been very, very supportive of masks indoors and, and to the extent that we can do it without, you know, getting to the point of, of an emergency proclamation. I know he's really been promoting that and, and really backing us on saying, wear your masks indoors. It works. It helps. It's just another tool. Please, why wouldn't you use this tool? Continuing the conversation of masks, we were speaking with the state superintendent earlier this week who said that he would be working closely with your department on whether to or not to continue the mandatory mask wearing for all public high school students and teachers uh, on school campuses. What are the conversations that you folks are having maybe with the Department of Education and your thoughts as we head back into the classroom uh, later this summer, what the future could look like with masks and school, students in schools? You know, I think there's no doubt that we'd all love to be done with COVID and, and respiratory diseases in general and just not have to deal with any of this. Um, I think right now the guidance is is reasonable because what it does is it maximizes keeping kids and staff in school. Um, because if there's COVID at school and you get exposed and you don't have a mask, then really you need to go home and, and, and uh, quarantine for five days and that pulls you out of school. And then you come back to school and you really need to wear that mask for days six through 10. So can you imagine having to figure out at school who's, who needs to wear a mask and for how many more days? Or just that some kids would have to wear masks and others wouldn't? I think that would be really challenging. Um, I think what, what they're doing now is very reasonable. And that's with the universal masking. If somebody ends up being positive for COVID at school, um, by virtue of that person having a mask, as well as all the other students having a mask, the others can stay in school, they can remain in school. And so I think that's kind of the goal of it right now. Um, you know, we're in constant dis discussion with the CDC to see if things are changing, if guidance is changing, if there's new research um, that would say that, that that no longer is, you know, accurate. Um, but right now, that's where we are.
Okay, I want to ask you about long COVID. There was that You Hero report that came out earlier uh, talking about just the prevalence of long COVID in people in Hawaii who had experienced COVID-19. What are your concerns about long COVID and, and you know, just your thoughts on that research overall and, and what you tell people about, you know, we, we know at this point there are no treatments and long COVID seems so complex. So just your thoughts on that, that particular study and, and also just long COVID overall. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the specifics within their study, um, but in the research that we've done, just trying to keep up on, on the topic, um, it's really challenging because the, the different research that's been done looks at different time periods, different points in time. So a lot of the research was done before we even had the Delta or the Omicron um, surges. Um, and then, of course, with the most recent cases, we, we can't yet quantify the long COVID because it was you know, too recent. Um, and, and the prevalence is anywhere from, you know, single digits like eight or nine percent to some reports are saying up to high as 70 percent that people will still have symptoms at four to six weeks. And some of them use a cutoff of three months. Some of them use a cutoff longer than that. So it's really hard to get a, a specific number or a really um, good body of research that you can match against another body of research because the variables are so different. That being said, I think long COVID is definitely a concern. And I think that's where, you know, it's really disingenuous when people say, oh, COVID is no big deal. It's like just, you know, catching a cold. Who cares? We should, you know, so what if you get COVID? Um, that may be true for some people, but we also need to be cognizant that some people may end up with long COVID and that can affect your quality of life and, and your ability to lead a normal life as you are now um, for weeks or months could even go on for years. We just don't know. And as you mentioned, we don't have any effective treatments yet. It's so varied. And so it's preventable, right? If you don't get severely ill from COVID, um, it's preventable. Why wouldn't you try and prevent yourself from being in that situation in the first place? So I think that's where we need to help each other. And we as a community, to the extent that we can keep our numbers down and we can prevent as many infections as we can and protect each other, that makes sense. You know, and beyond long COVID, of course, is death and that we are still seeing people uh, passing away from this virus within our own community. Uh, I'm wondering if you can tell us about some of the statistics on that. How many people are average uh, in the state are, you know, still passing away from COVID-19 and what you're learning from the deaths, knowing that now we do have things in our tube belt with like vaccines and treatments. Uh, we are still seeing these deaths, unfortunately. Uh, but maybe what is the state learning from those cases or what we're seeing overall with the death counts? Yeah, so the hospitals probably have the most specific uh, data on, on the death cases. Um, what information I can get, it seems like it's still um, typically in people who are older and in people who have underlying medical conditions. And so even some of those people who have been um, vaccinated and boosted, because of the, the myriad of underlying medical conditions um, and their health is more fragile. So they're susceptible to bad outcomes. And that, again, that's why it's so important to get what protection you can, you know, in, in getting vaccinated and wearing your masks indoors when you're around others. Um, it just makes sense. Um, we had been seeing about six or eight deaths per week. And then in the past week, I think we had like 15 deaths recorded. Um, and it's hard because the data death will then get matched after the fact to um, to the specific date as opposed to when it was reported to us. And so it's 
probably more accurate to look at the website that we have and look at the curve and see and you know where it actually gets attributed what the date was but it's a lagging indicator right and so if we had a max of cases on june 1st we may see a declination in in the new case counts but we're seeing we're still seeing that the fallout from that rising so hopefully that'll plateau and start coming down again but you know we had a lot of people in the hospital it's a lagging indicator of when people got sick and so the hospitalization also is a lagging indicator of when we might see the deaths so it's not surprising that we're seeing it right now um, i'm hoping that it also will will trend down can we talk a little bit about the availability availability of treatments out there i think that you know, just in my own friend group, knowing so many people who have gotten COVID, they test positive at a home test, and they're kind of at a loss as what to do. Should I go get Paxlovid? What are the treatments available? What are the next steps that I need to take? Given how prevalent this is in our community, can you sort of walk us through that and what you're recommending people do if they do test positive with a home test um, in terms of getting, accessing those treatments that are available? Yeah, so the federal government um, has uh, supplied every state and, and uh, territory with uh, therapeutics and we can order it every week and so we typically will place an order um, it comes in it goes directly to the sites kind of similar to the vaccines that that come in you know we get orders from different places we have a good amount of therapeutics in our state and we're kind of in the process as you come out in the next couple of days we're really trying to educate the providers and link the providers with, with information and make it easy for them in terms of the some of the new um, decision-making tools and whatnot that have come up from the federal government. Um, for people, we are similarly putting out a one-pager trying to encourage people, if you test positive, you know, please call your healthcare provider or at least go to the hawaiicovid19.com um, website that we have and they're, they're Q&A sheets there, their FAQs and, and just things that'll tell you. So if you're at high risk and you test positive, you know, it would make sense that you start on some sort of antiviral like Paxlovid or the Molnupiravir. Um, and these are treatments that you can do right when you find out that you're positive before you get in the hospital. If you end up in the hospital, these are di it's a different set of treatments. So this is stuff that hopefully should keep you out of the hospital. It's free. You shouldn't have to pay for it. Um, the medicine comes from the feds, but what you, so what you do is you hit the website or you call your doctor, you say, hey, I just tested positive. Should I be on, should I be taking these medicines? And so especially for older individuals, for individuals with a lot of health problems, for those who have a lot of, of comorbidities and are at higher risk for having a bad outcome, absolutely start people on those medicines. You know, we're getting a lot of questions about the role of the CDC guidelines and what is recommended by the CDC and what actually actually becomes implemented within our state. Uh, you know, we are in a red zone as the CDC would qualify here in Hawaii with the number of cases that we're seeing. Uh, and yet some of the requirements that the CDC recommends for those areas in those red zones haven't necessarily been mandated or implemented here locally. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can share how that information, the guidelines that are provided from the CDC, uh, is filtered through the department's decision-making process of what actually becomes policy in Hawaii. So again, the, the Department of Health doesn't actually set policy. We just make recommendations. Um, I think the good thing is that, that we as a department have always advocated for indoor masking. We never said that you don't need to do it or you know it's not useful. 
we have always been advocating for that. And so that that doesn't change whether we're in a low, you know, green or yellow or an orange um, state. So even though we're now in the orange high state, and a lot of that has to do with um, with hospitalizations and hospital capacity, but we haven't wavered on that. Wear your mask indoors. That's that's a good idea. You know, continue doing that. I think some of the other things are we stepped up the messaging on avoiding large gatherings when we went to a higher co uh, COVID community level. Um, really it's it's about people understanding and, and making good decisions so when we're at that level it means that we got a lot of COVID in our community which we know we do i mean a thousand new cases every single day and we know it's higher because people are doing tests at home and those aren't getting added in so if you can imagine that there are over a thousand new cases a day there's a lot of COVID in our community the chances that you're going to get exposed are significantly high you know wear your mask now's not a good time to to be out in large gatherings with people you don't know who are all unmasked or in close quarters you know that kind of thing about making decisions about you know do i want to go to a certain event that's indoors that's in a really small place or hey there's an event and it's outdoors and it's not that many people and they're spread out yeah that sounds like it might be actually pretty reasonable or safe to attend um do i want to go to a restaurant or do i want to do takeout that kind of thing um i think that's where we're we're just trying to educate people so that they're empowered to make their own decisions. In terms of mandates, again, that gets really tough because that means that, you know, there's got to be either an emergency order by the mayors or an emergency proclamation. And I think at this point, you know, a couple of years into this, that becomes more challenging. You know, the last time you were on here when we had talked about the true rate, right, that we know that there's over a thousand cases a day uh, that are or that are, <laughs> I want to make sure that I get the metric right, but you had said that you thought it was a magnitude uh, of order times higher. What do you think the true rate is given the home testing? Um, you know, how many new cases do you think we're really seeing that aren't getting counted? That's kind of tough because it, it's sort of like long COVID, right? Like how do, we, how do we know exactly how many home tests are being done if it's not something that gets reported to us or that we can't track? And so just depending on who you read, um, some articles um, on the mainland will, will reference a number saying that they think it's between, you know, eight and 15 times higher. Um, does that hold true for us in Hawaii? Hard to say. What population were they measuring? So it's really hard to say. Um, just from talking to, to our state epidemiologists and from reading, you know, articles that I think might pertain to us or what we're seeing in other counties and other states, I think it's reasonable to say, I mean, if you were to guess how many how many people do you think are doing home tests versus actually going and doing a test, you know, either an administered antigen test or, or a PCR test somewhere, you know, do you imagine that it's at least twice as many people are doing that or three times or four times, you know? So I think, I think last time I said it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's about five times, maybe five or six times what the reported number is. Um, I think the bottom line is just that there is a lot of COVID in our community and we should adjust our behavior accordingly right now. And hopefully that comes down. And I think there's every reason to believe that we will trend down, um, barring a surge from BA four and five. And then when the numbers are lower again, then we change you know, what decisions we make knowing that the community level has changed. You know, based on everything that we've discussed thus far today regarding COVID-19 as our time wraps up, I'm wondering if you could just give your overall comfort level of where we are as a state in dealing with COVID-19. 
based on the uh, numbers that you spoke of, uh, what we're seeing in terms of treatment, how people are responding, are, are you confident and comfortable with where we're at at a state and that the Department of Health uh, has helped to prepare the community based on what we're seeing with COVID-19? I think we're transitioning back to the healthcare sector needing to be more involved with this as opposed to government. Um, I think our hospital numbers are still high. We're at about, a, I want to say about 180-ish cases in the hospital. The good news is that we're not seeing that translate to ICU admissions. Um, and so I expect that to come down. Again, it's, a, it's another lagging indicator. So as the cases come down, um, there'll be a little lag and I expect the hospital numbers to, to come down further and they've started trending down. I think we're in a good place overall. There's still an awful lot of COVID out in our community. And I think people should be aware of that and make good decisions in terms of, you know, what risk they're willing to accept. Um, again, all those decisions about, you know, what events you're going to go to, what your behavior is going to be, whether or not you're wearing a mask, whether, you know, vaccine is out there. I'm really, really happy that it's out there for the, for the under five group. And I would strongly encourage parents, go get your kids vaccinated. It's safe. It's effective. It works. This is, you know, why wouldn't you do something to help prevent your child from getting severely ill or hospitalized? There have been over 2 million cases of COVID in kids from um, age six months to four years um, since the start of the pandemic. Go get your kids vaccinated now. It's, it's safe. It's effective. It's a reasonable thing to do. Um, I think we're in an okay place. I'm hoping we trend down. At the same time I'm saying that, I'm kind of keeping an eye on the BA4 and 5 to see what that's going to do to us. Um, it is possible to get reinfected. So please don't think that just because you had COVID way back, you know, a year ago or something that you can't get it again. Um, and I just, I hope that we continue as a community to band together, to help each other out, to take care of each other and to ride through this. Okay, we covered a lot of ground today. Dr. Libby Char, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Aloha. Well, always great to hear from her. And you heard some cautious optimism there that the COVID numbers overall seem to be at least leveling off, not necessarily trending downward at a rapid pace, but things are seeming to improve. But she is very cautious saying that they are very carefully watching BA4 and BA5, these variants that are uh, significantly more transmissible than the earlier variants, and that uh, even if you had COVID in the past, you are not necessarily immune to these new variants, and that could lead to an uptick in cases and all the consequences that come with that. It does sound, uh, no definitive answer there so far, but it does sound like masks are here to stay when it comes to kids in schools for the foreseeable future. That was something we talked about at length with Keith Hayashi. The bottom line there, she says that if they take away the masks in schools and there is an exposure, the, the, that classroom then needs to quarantine for five days, wear masks on campus for the following five, and it becomes just a logistical nightmare on enforcing all of that. So for the time being, masks is the way they've decided to go. Yeah, but you also heard from her encouraging people to continue to wear masks, saying that while there is no mask mandate in place, uh, there has always been a recommendation uh, for those individuals who maybe don't feel comfortable or at higher risk to uh, continue maintaining to wear masks, especially when indoor spaces. Uh, and she also noted that uh, as these as we see the case numbers go up, people should begin to adjust their decision making based on 
events that they're going to, people that they're coming in contact with, uh, but a lot of it based on what we're seeing in the community with the overall spread. Uh, we also heard from her about the different treatment options that, options that continue to be available uh, and a process for those individuals who actually take at-home tests and what that looks like in terms of getting treatment and making sure that, uh, one, that you are qualified and that there's something that's applicable for your treatment process, uh, but also about the procedures that are happening within the hospitals when it comes to treatment. Uh, we also got a brief on monkeypox as well, and the director there saying that while they are continuing to monitor this, that this is not something that is necessarily alarming right now. Yeah, uh, a new case that she did share some details of with us this morning, the sixth in the state so far. But she says, by and large, most people in Hawaii are not at risk for this virus. They are doing quite a bit of contact tracing with these cases. Um, she described what happens if you do get infected with this. It starts with flu-like symptoms, and then you do get um, these uh, I guess, I, like bumps on your hands, your feet and whatnot. Um, but she does say that if you at all suspect that you've been in contact with a case to contact your uh, healthcare provider. Uh, interesting also, as you noted uh, on treatments, that they are doing outreach to the providers to try to provide more clarity you know, on what advice they should be giving their patients about these therapeutics that are available free of charge from the federal government. She says Hawaii is well supplied. They order them every week. We have plenty of that available in our community and time is of the essence. So if you do test positive at home, it's a good idea to call your doctor to find out if you're eligible, uh, if you should be taking those therapeutics. Yeah, a lot covered. If you missed any part of it, we encourage you to go back and watch the episode, watch a replay on Channel 50, or catch us as a podcast for the complete interview with Dr. Char. Uh, next week, we will be switching gears on Monday. We will be focusing in uh, on what's happening with former prosecutor Keith Hayat, uh, excuse me, uh, the former prosecutor Keith Kaneshiro, uh, and the arrest that happened just last week. We'll be talking to a few in the legal area. Uh, environment to talk about what's happening there and then on wednesday we will be having an exciting show in our long show as we talk to the top three contenders for governor on the democratic ticket yeah we're calling this the digital town hall it's an extended one-hour edition of spotlight hawaii Josh Green, uh, Vicky Cayetano, and Kai Kahele will all be joining us for a live conversation. Uh, they'll have a chance to ask questions of each other. You will have a chance to ask questions of them. It's one hour unscripted live, and we welcome all of your questions. So please do join us for that conversation. Uh, we believe it's the first time that the three of them have appeared in a live form of this kind so far uh, in the election process. So we are very much looking forward to that digital town hall. Join us for that on Wednesday at 1030. But before then, of course, do join us back here on Monday. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend. Aloha. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs.